Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi folks, before we begin, I just want to tell you about two live shows coming up in the next month. One in Waterford and the other in Dublin. So on Saturday, June the 22nd, I'm speaking at the Stony Batter Festival in Dublin at 4.30pm in the Elbow Room on North Brunswick Street. That's going to be on the story of the Great Hunger in Dublin and I'll be focusing on the lives of a few people very much like today's show. So if you enjoyed this episode, you'll really love this live event. It's on in the Elbow Room on Brunswick Street at 4.30 on June 22nd in Stony Batter, Dublin and admission is €5. Then I'm really excited to announce that I'm teaming up with another Irish podcast, Snugcast, for a live recording in Waterford on July 13th. Myself, along with DJ Anon from Snugcast, have planned a really special event which is taking place in Grady's Yard in Waterford on July 13th. Now, if you're not familiar with Snugcast, it's a great show where DJ and Owen record fascinating laid-back chats in some of Ireland's coziest pubs. On July the 13th, we're joining forces to record an episode called On the Lash, From Medieval Binge Drinking to Prohibition, Drinking Culture in Ireland. This is going to be a warts and all look at Ireland's complex relationship with drink. It's going to be a great night and it's a free event, so hopefully I'll see you there. That's in Grady's Yard, Waterford, on July the 13th. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn DeWire and this is The Beginning of the End, Queen Victoria's Visit to Ireland in 1849. Queen Victoria is often referred to in Ireland as the Famine Queen. However, when she stepped ashore in Ireland in 1849, in a country still reeling from the Great Famine, she was afforded a warm welcome. There were few utterances of protest. Historians and the wider public since have tried to analyse what this meant. Many have wondered, did she really get that warm welcome or was it somehow orchestrated? For me, I think this misses the point about the visit and while we will look at the details of Victoria's time in Ireland, We'll be spending much of the next hour or so in one of the worst slums in Victorian Dublin, St. Micken's Parish, to contextualise this royal visit. 
I think what we're about to experience and see goes a long way to explain the reaction to Victoria's arrival in the city and indeed it'll tell us a lot about the later stages of the famine in the capital city. So this episode begins with a general look at life in St. Mickens in the mid-19th century. This is not for the faint-hearted. Then after a good introduction to St. Mickens, we'll meet one couple, Bridget and George Shea, who I came across in workhouse and parish records. Through the podcast, we will follow their experiences of the Great Hunger through to the arrival of Queen Victoria in 1849. By the finish of today's show, the end of the Great Hunger will be in sight as well. As you're about to hear, I really struck gold to an extent when I stumbled across the couple, Bridget and George Shea. It was somewhat accidental because while they lived at the very periphery of Dublin society, there is actually quite a large amount of detail about their lives in the late 1840s. Nevertheless, it took a long time to unearth the full picture and I want to sincerely thank the patrons of the podcast who have funded this research. Each month, listeners like you support my work and give me the time to find these stories in archives and make them into shows. Without listeners like you who have become patrons, this podcast would be very different and people like the Shea family would remain lost to time, forgotten in archives. So thank you, I really appreciate your generosity. If you want to support my work, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. While I will be eternally grateful to you, more importantly, you will get lots in return. Patrons get extra podcasts, episode guides which contain reference notes, early access to the show, advert-free episodes, and access to my documentary on the Great Famine, made with the filmmaker Jamie Goldrick. I've also started giving the books that I no longer need to listeners, and in the next few weeks I'll be giving away a copy of the classic The Great Hunger by Cecil Wortham Smith. You can get all this by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. That's patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Irish podcast. Now to start the show. We first need to find our bearings in St. Mickens before we meet Bridget and George Shea. So for the first 10 minutes or so, we'll be taking a look around this slum and then I'll introduce Bridget and George. St. Mickens Parish hugs the north bank of the River Liffey in Dublin and is amongst the oldest of the city's parishes, stretching back nearly 1,000 years. The original church was one of the earliest buildings constructed on the north bank of the Liffey by the city's Viking founders. Named after an obscure saint, possibly Norse in origin, the parish became the heart of Oxmantown, one of the four medieval suburbs of Dublin. Over the following centuries, its fortunes waxed and waned, but by the mid-19th century, St. Mickens had seen better days. Its poverty was infamous, yet it was still home to over 10% of Dublin's population in 1845. The residents lived cheek by jowl in a dense network of lanes and streets intersected by a warren of back alleys and courts. The parish was bounded in the west by Smithfield Market and bookended in the east by Halston Street and its two prisons, the disused Sheriff of Dublin's prison and the notorious Newgate Jail. The parish also had some more famous landmarks at its periphery. 
The forecourts, a large neoclassical building, was perched on the north quays, casting a majestic shimmering reflection into the Liffey on sunny days. Then at the northern reaches of the parish there was also a series of impressive structures. In the 1840s, Broadstone Station, a new railway depot, in an unusual neo-Egyptian style, evoking a pharaoh's tomb, was rising up on Constitution Hill, overlooking the parish. However, most striking and indeed reflective of St. Micken's fortunes was the Linen Hall, which was one of Dublin's largest buildings at the time. Containing nearly 500 rooms over three floors, it had been the centre of Dublin's flourishing linen market. However, by the 1840s, it and its trade were a faded glory. Over the previous five decades, Dublin's linen trade had withered in the face of stiff competition from Belfast, and then it had been finished off by the recession which had followed in the wake of Ireland's incorporation into the United Kingdom under the Act of Union. In 1842, William Makepeace Thackeray, on a trip to Dublin, visited the Linen Hall and found what he described as a huge, useless, lonely, decayed place. However, this, to an extent, summed up the entirety of St. Micken's Parish at the time. Indeed, most visitors to Victorian Dublin, and indeed all too many Dubliners themselves, avoided the parish where possible. One could easily get lost in the lanes and alleys where thousands lived in unimaginable filth and squalor. As the looming storm that was the Great Famine appeared on the horizon in September 1845, St. Mickens was arguably the worst slum in Dublin, home to the poorest of the city's working class. Those without regular work newly arrived emigrants from rural Ireland and the city's down and outs inhabited dilapidated houses. All too often when the parish was mentioned in newspapers it was for all the wrong reasons associated with crime and vice. Indeed it was often illicit activities that drew in Dublin's wealthier classes to the parish. In 1842 a group of aristocrats were caught up in a police raid on illegal cockfighting which was taking place in the parish. Brutal as the sport was, the cock's claws were fitted with blades. It was a sign of the time that the middle-class Royal Society for the Protection of Cruelty to Animals showed greater concerns for the cocks involved in the fighting than the people who lived in the appalling conditions in St. Mickens. Blood sports were not the only draw for wealthier Dubliners, though. The brothels of St. Mickens also attracted outsiders. While Dublin's major red-light districts were to be found in the neighbouring parish of St. Paul's and the notorious Monto in St. Mary's, there were brothels to be found in St. Mickens as well. However, the outsiders who were drawn to St. Mickens for one reason or another left to return to comfortable beds in Dublin's more affluent suburbs. For those condemned to live in the parish, there was no such escape. Trying to even fathom what their lives were like is difficult. These people themselves have left few records in their own words. Many were illiterate and few could afford pen, paper or ink. When outsiders did bother to write about them, they rarely asked their opinions, instead by and large making what were often ill-judged assumptions about their lives. That said, there were exceptions. In 1845, oblivious to the fast approaching famine, the parish doctor, the 55-year-old Thomas Willis, carried out a survey of St. Mickens providing a snapshot of life that was nothing short of disturbing. St. Mickens was the most densely populated parish not only in Dublin, 
but also it had a higher population density than anywhere in London. Indeed, it was so overcrowded, Thomas Willis urged the authorities to ban building on graveyards which were being cleared at the time. He felt it imperative to keep some open space in the parish. This was hardly surprising. The population was staggering. Over 22,000 people lived in the 1,400-odd houses, averaging around 16 to a building. But even this figure masks the horrific reality of day-to-day life. Thomas Willis, who knew this area better than most, described how St. Nicholas had declined in the opening decades of the 19th century and those who could had long fled the parish. Willis recorded, There are no gentry within the district. This parish is now the refuge of reduced persons from other districts. The houses, Willis explained, were owned by what were called house jobbers, essentially slum landlords. These people, rather than renting an entire house to one family, instead rented them a room, usually on a week-by-week basis. In some cases, the residents of St. Mickens lived 12 to a room. This inevitably led to an intensely communal existence. People lived, loved, cooked, ate, drank, washed and went to the toilet in these rooms, all side by side with their children and neighbours. It goes without saying, people only lived in these conditions because of grinding poverty. They couldn't afford anything else, and wider society cared little whether they lived or died. Inevitably, with the residents so poor and the area so overcrowded, St. Mickens was filthy beyond belief. Animals, pigs, asses and poultry roamed the streets and lanes and indeed the houses in some cases. Needless to say, very few houses had running water of any kind. The residents had to use pumps, several of which were located across the parish. This left clean water hard to come by. The pumps only worked for a few hours a day and many did not even have large enough containers or buckets to gather much water. Instead, they used broken pots or jars. With water hard to come by in the first place, people used and reused what they had several times over. Thomas Willis, the doctor, observed it might be first used to wash clothes, then to wash linens, and finally, perhaps a third time, to clean the floor in a process that sounded more like moving dirt around than cleaning. In 1847, permanent running water was introduced to St. Mickens, but even then there were only two public fountains for a population of over 20,000 people. To make matters worse, there was no sewage system to speak of. The sewer in the area ran down the district's main thoroughfare, Church Street. The streets and alleys were full of human waste, animal waste and rubbish that built up faster than it was cleared away by scavengers. The backyards of the houses were truly vile. Willis observed, The stench and disgusting filth of these places are inconceivable. In this poverty and filth, people had comparatively large families. One in seven had ten or more children. While this might sound counterintuitive for families who could only afford a single room to have several children, such large families were tragically necessary. Infant mortality was staggeringly high long before the famine hit the population. Very few women did not lose a child. Of women who had over eight children, Thomas Willis discovered that only one in 718 had never lost a child. Indeed, the overall level of child mortality was such that nearly 60% of children had died within nine years of birth. 
That's six in every ten, a jaw-dropping figure. While malnourishment was always an inescapable factor of life, disease was the major killer. Thomas Willis described it in the following terms. Disease, in every aggravated form, with all its train of desolating misery, is rarely absent. In times of epidemics, such as the cholera outbreak of 1832, death rates soared. Indeed, one quarter of the 6,000 cholera cases recorded in Dublin in 1832 occurred in St. Mickens. However, the people of this impoverished parish tried to make the best of life. They were by no means perfect, neither were they the degenerate people often depicted in middle and upper class publications. Thomas Willis noted when talking of the mothers of St. Mickens, their love of their offspring is boundless. Amidst the hardship of daily life, the people of St. Mickens were also in some ways less judgmental than the more well-off in society. In the 19th century, the middle and upper classes stigmatised children born outside of wedlock. They're frequently featured in novels from the time condemned to lives at the periphery of society. This was not the case in working-class communities. The concept of an illegitimate child did not exist. Thomas Willis, himself a middle-class Dubliner but a doctor, oddly assumed this was because children were just not born outside of wedlock. This wasn't the case. Instead, this working-class community had differing values to the likes of Thomas Willis when it came to virginity, premarital sex and marriage. They often formed what were called informal unions where unmarried couples lived together and considered themselves married, something that did not raise eyebrows in the community. How common it was is unclear, but such an arrangement would have been inconceivable in middle or upper class Dublin and would have led to ostracization. Nevertheless, in Mickens, life was hard. People were making the most of what they had, but they didn't have very much. This picture of life in St. Mickens gives us an insight into the weak foundations many in the parish rested on when the Great Famine struck in 1845. While the famine in Dublin, including St. Mickens, was never as severe as it was in the west of Ireland, and as we will see, ended earlier than it did in other parts of the country, all too many poor in the parish still struggled to survive. Bridget and George Shea were just one such couple. George and Bridget Shea were born around the year 1809, although as was common enough in working class communities at the time, Neither seems to have been quite sure of their age. In the 19th century, one of the most important reasons people knew their age was inheritance which was granted when an individual legally became an adult. However, if you had nothing to inherit, like most people in St. Mickens, then your precise age was not so important. So at various times over his life, George gave ages that would put him birth sometime between 1809 and 1812, while Bridget judging on her records, was born sometime between 1808 and 1812. When, where, and indeed even if they were married is unknown. A marriage ceremony is certainly not recorded in St. Mickens or the neighbouring parish of St. Paul's, but they appear to have been living together in 1837 when a George Shea and a Bridget Walsh baptised a son in St. Paul's parish church. George and Bridget may have had what was called an irregular union, one recognised by neither church nor state, but the couple considered themselves married. Indeed, other aspects of the Shea family life was not what we might expect for people born in the Victorian era. 
As far as I could tell, George Shea appears in parish records having fathered at least four children, beginning in 1837, when he had a son named George. This child was followed 18 months later by another son, John. In 1843, a third child was born, and this time she was given her mother's name, Bridget. Then, in 1847, a fourth child, a boy named Peter, was baptised. What's unusual is that these children seem to have been born to two and possibly even three different women. While Bridget gave birth to the first three children, the youngest boy, Peter, was the son of George and a woman, Mary Bryan, yet was raised by George and his wife, Bridget. While this would have caused outrage in middle and upper class communities and the child could not have been raised in the family home, in St. Mickens the situation does appear to have been different. As Thomas Willis pointed out, the notion of illegitimacy was not that important. However, the birth of Peter in 1847, when George seems to have been living with his long-term partner Bridget, must have caused tension in the house and chatter in the tight-knit community they lived in. The concept of illegitimacy may not have existed, but the parish was not a haven of free love by any means, and Bridget cannot have been impressed by her husband's exploits. In terms of their family life, the Shays moved around a lot and records indicate they lived on Hammond Lane, Phoenix Street and Church Street, all of which are within about 200 metres of one of the main junctions in the parish of St. Mickens, where Church Street, Pill Lane and Hammond Lane met. Few records exist, though we do have census data for one house the Shays lived in, 24 Hammond Lane, which provides us with some insight into George and Bridget's home life. Although the building was owned by a hay merchant, John Quinn, who lived at number 24, it appears much of the building was a tenement. Aside from Quinn himself, there were 13 other families, including the Shays, listed as residents. Exactly how many individuals these families constituted is impossible to know, but 13 families could have ranged from anywhere between 40 and 100 people. While the owner, John Quinn, may have been comfortable, the inhabitants of number 24 were by and large poor. George and Bridget's neighbours included James Townley, a labourer, while a Mary Gray was listed in the building and she may have been a poor widow originally from Antrim who lived in St. Mickens, but this is not entirely clear. It's little surprise that the Shays themselves lived in such overcrowded conditions because they themselves struggled to make an income too. George Shay was a comb maker while Bridget listed various different occupations, including a needleworker, a street trader, and on some occasions also a comb maker. Comb making was a skilled trade which fashioned hair combs from ox or cow horns. However, like Dublin's linen business, this had seen better days by the 1840s. While it was actually one of the city's oldest crafts, having been established 1,000 years previously, not long after Viking raiders had first settled along the banks of the Liffey, there was no question it was in fatal decline by the 1840s. Indeed, it must have been obvious to the Shays they were going to be among the last of their kind. The industry had struggled in Ireland like so much else after the passage of the Act of Union in 1801, which had seen Ireland incorporated into the United Kingdom. Decade by decade, comb makers in the city were fewer and fewer. The movement campaigning to repeal the Act of Union ever eager to point out the failures that had resulted from it, claimed that the number of comb makers in Dublin declined from 112 in 1800 to 68 in 1834, despite the fact the population had risen considerably. 
In short, the act of union had led to an increase in the price of ox and cow horns and it was increasingly difficult to earn a living at the trade. All that said though, up until 1845, it must have been a point of pride for George and Bridget that they had never been reduced to bringing their family to the workhouse. The North Dublin workhouse which had been opened in 1840 on rising land on the north end of St Mickens loomed over the lives of the poor, symbolising the lowest point to which they could fall. In 1845 Thomas Willis, who was also on the board of guardians of the workhouse as well as being a parish doctor, had observed that it was by and large inhabited by widows, orphans and the sick. For George and Bridget to have to resort to such an institution would have been utterly humiliating. While they managed to avoid it, once the famine hit, the Shays' family life, already difficult, was inevitably going to get a lot, lot worse. Before we continue on our journey in the 1840s, this is just a quick reminder about my two upcoming live shows in Dublin and Waterford. The first is on Saturday, June the 22nd in the Elbow Room in Stony Batter and that will look at the story of the Great Famine in Dublin. This will include pictures and slides of many of the places mentioned throughout the series. Entry is €5 and is on in the Elbow Rooms on North Brunswick Street in Stony Batter. Then I'm joining up with DJ and Owen from Snowcast for what's going to be a really special night in Waterford on July 13th. We're doing what is going to be an intriguing live show in Grady's Yard. The theme of that one is On the Lash, Medieval Binge Drinking to Prohibition, Drink Culture in Ireland. This, as the name suggests, is going to be a look at Ireland's attitudes to alcohol, good, bad and indifferent. Entry to that is free and is on on the evening of July the 3rd in Grady's Yard in Waterford. Now, let's get back to the story of George and Bridget Shea. Already in a vulnerable position, living in one of the most impoverished neighbourhoods in Dublin, the Shays were always going to struggle as the Great Famine deepened in Irish society. It's always worth reiterating the point that while the famine transformed Irish society, the contours of the crisis were shaped by people's economic position. It didn't simply fall from the sky and affect everyone equally. If you had some resources, you could emigrate, but if you were in poverty, you were trapped as food began to increase in price. Furthermore, if you lived in poverty before the famine began, you were already more susceptible to disease and starvation. While the Shays seemed to have been far too poor to consider emigrating, they were better placed than some. There's no doubt the famine in Dublin was very different than it was in parts of the west of Ireland. The city in general was wealthier and there were more resources available to the poor. Furthermore, the urban working class were less dependent on potatoes, eating more bread which buffered them slightly from the direct impact of the failure of the potato crop. However, while the overall impact of the famine was less severe than it was in the West, St. Mickens was the worst place to find yourself in Dublin. The Bow Street Night Asylum was located just around the corner from where the Shays lived. This, a homeless shelter of sorts, attracted many refugees arriving in from the west of Ireland to the parish. These people, on leaving the Night Asylum, filtered out into the surrounding streets in search of accommodation in the already overcrowded buildings of St. Mickens. As the famine intensified, these were now joined by what we can only describe as the utterly dejected. Through the course of the famine, tens of thousands of Irish people who managed to emigrate 
but had fallen on hard times in England, were deported back to Ireland in accordance with the laws of the time. These people were dumped on the North Wall docks and eventually many filtered along the river to St. Mickens, drawn by the foreboding and haunting institution that stood on the northern edge of the parish, the North Dublin Workhouse. Increasingly, the situation in the parish worsened. While poverty had long been a feature of life in St. Mickens, the fact that it was slipping deeper and deeper into a severe crisis was undisputable by February 1847, when John and Ellen Mulhern, parents to a family of four, starved to death on Hendrick Street, just a short distance from where the Shays were living across the boundary in the parish of St. Paul's. Covered in part 12 of the series, this illustrated the stark reality of life in Dublin at the time. The famine was taking its toll, albeit not as bad as in the west of Ireland where deaths were being registered in some areas by scores and even hundreds. While the Shays were not as in such dire straits as the Mulhern family who had arrived from Leitrim and struggled to find somewhere to live, George and Bridget Shay were at the same time increasingly struggling and had suffered a loss of their own. A few months earlier, in October 1846, Bridget had brought the couple's two children, her son John and the baby Peter, who George had fathered with Mary Bryan, to the workhouse. This was the first time the Shays had ever to fall back on the institution, which in itself was significant. Bridget and baby Peter, only a few months old at the time, were both described as being very delicate. Despite the availability of medical aid and regular food in the workhouse, Baby Peter perished in the North Dublin workhouse less than a month later. Bridget left the building with their remaining child, John, the following day on November the 17th to tell George his young son had died. While no cause of death is listed, it is likely that the death of Peter was in part at least due to the wider famine conditions in the city, given Bridget herself was described as delicate at this point. After this, the family took up a new accommodation on Phoenix Street around the corner from their previous home on Church Street. However, the famine was deepening with each passing day in late 1846. Work was in short supply and the price of food was increasing. By December the 3rd, the Shays were back at the workhouse where they spent a further six days. This time hunger may have been the motive as George himself joined Bridget and their last remaining child, John. This must have been difficult for the family to return to where young Peter had died less than a month earlier, but they had little choice. Bridget was still described as delicate, while young John, aged eight, had worms. The workhouse regime they were subjected to has been well covered in previous podcasts, so I won't delve into it here. After a stay of six days, they did return to Phoenix Street, but within a few weeks they were again back at the workhouse on January the 20th, 1847 where they stayed until February the 9th. The famine was clearly taking a toll on the family. George himself was now described as having pains. Bridget had a delicate chest, while their sole surviving son, John, had a sore head. Their appearance was described as ragged and dirty. Leaving the workhouse on February the 9th, they would not return though for several months. Living in Dublin, they were in a better position to access what relief was available than those, say, out in the far west of Ireland, who in some cases had to walk miles to receive help. In Dublin, the government aid that was made available, alongside private charities, was far easier reached. 
For example, a soup kitchen opened on Hammond Lane only a few metres from the Shays' home and this must have been a decisive factor in keeping them from the workhouse through the rest of Black 47. However, this was a dangerous time in Dublin for other reasons other than just hunger. Disease, the major killer in the Great Hunger, had broken out in Dublin on a huge scale. Typhus and typhoid thrived in parishes like St. Mickens, where the filth that had long existed provided ideal conditions. While 40,000 Dubliners were struck down and thousands died, the Shea family seemed to have been lucky. However, while the epidemic levels of typhus and typhoid began to subside in Dublin in early 1848, and the worst, most lethal phase of the famine was passing in the city, for those at the bottom of society, like the Shea family, they were by no means out of the woods. While the threat from disease abated, the famine had devastated wider society and the economy, and they would remain at risk for years to come. Indeed, they would spend more time in the workhouse in 1848 than any other year. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. In January 1848, the Shea family found themselves in dire straits again. George turned up at the workhouse and was admitted. He was said to be in good health. However, the record now stated that Bridget had died, leaving George a widower. There was no mention of their son John either. George, alone in the workhouse, now remained there for five days, but eventually left on January the 18th. Only two days later he would return. He was now accompanied, however, by his supposedly dead wife, Bridget, and their son. This unusual behaviour continued. On March the 29th, George again turned up to the institution, being described now as a single man, and the following day, March the 30th, Bridget arrived with her young child, John, describing herself as a widow. Strange as this behaviour sounds, there were reasons they might have lied about the status of their partner. As we have seen in previous episodes, the workhouse and indeed even charities were bound by stringent rules and attitudes about who did and didn't qualify and deserve help during the Great Famine. And in 1848, the Shays may have hoped that as a widow, Bridget would invoke sympathy and receive more help. 
In the chaos of early March 1848, when dozens were entering the workhouse most days and there were over 3,000 people in the building, they may have hoped that the authorities wouldn't recognise that Bridget was married to George, who was clearly still alive. However, four days later, on April the 3rd, 1848, Bridget, George and their son John left the workhouse. While it's impossible to know for sure what happened, because workhouse records do not go into any great detail, the authorities may have recognised them and thrown them out of the workhouse for lying. This is certainly indicated by their next course of action, because the Shays now left St. Mickens and crossed the river, taking up lodgings on Plunkett Street in the Liberties. If there was a worse slum than St. Mickens, the Liberties were surely it. However, what was all important for the Shea family was that this was in the catchment area of the South Dublin workhouse, where they went some time later. This was an entirely different institution with a different staff and a different register where no one would know they'd been thrown out of the North Dublin workhouse. They remained in the South Dublin workhouse for three weeks, leaving on May the 1st. Eventually, in that summer of 1848, the Shea family relocated back to St. Mickens, now taking up residence on Hammond Lane, a few hundred metres from their previous addresses on Church Street and Phoenix Street. They continued to struggle and returned to the workhouse on August 9th to spend three weeks there. Things now may have started to slightly improve for George and Bridget because over the course of the following 12 months into 1849 they were able to remain out of the workhouse although we can only assume they must have been receiving aid through soup kitchens. However, we cannot say the catastrophe that was the Great Famine was over yet for the Shea family because... In 1849, a terrible epidemic of cholera broke out and much like the typhus and typhoid of 1847, it found an ideal breeding ground in the working class neighbourhoods of Dublin. Thousands perished, but again it seems the Shea family were lucky or at least survived if they contracted the disease. However, while still living on Hammond Lane in the summer of 1849, they could not escape the serious problems the famine inflicted on them. It's worth bearing in mind their spells in the workhouse were linked to the famine. It was not until late 1846 when starvation and soaring food prices set in that they had first entered the institution and now they just could not seem to break their dependence on it. In early August 1849 the situation facing the Shays was deteriorating again. In desperate need of help they considered returning to the North Dublin workhouse for the first time in around a year. While the workhouse was never an attractive proposition, now they had to factor in the dangers posed by the cholera epidemic that was ravaging Dublin, which obviously posed a grave threat, not least to their sole surviving child, John. While George and Bridget were faced with this dilemma about whether to return to the workhouse, what was a very odd event was taking place in Dublin on that very weekend. There was a strange, even festive mood abroad in the city. The fact the famine seemed to be finally coming to an end in Dublin had drawn a visitor that was long awaited, for some at least. And before we continue George and Bridget's story, we need to take a detour and to see what was happening in other parts of Dublin in early August 1849. In that first weekend of August 1849, as George and Bridget Shea weighed up their options, and increasingly realised they had only one choice, to return to the North Dublin workhouse. 
there was a strange mixture of excitement and anticipation abroad in other parts of the city. Indeed, as the Shea family set off to the workhouse, the final touches of preparations for a major celebration were underway in Dublin. While parts of the south side of the city and the city centre itself were being overhauled, even close to where the Shays lived, at the far end of Hammond Lane, workmen had installed gas pipe lighting on the facade of the forecourts building to illuminate it at night. Across Dublin, in a city which was just starting to emerge from the famine and where many were and would remain pauperised, certain streets and buildings tried to mask the horrors of the previous years. Along with gas lighting, electric lights were installed on Nelson's Pillar and the main thoroughfare in the city, while paint suppliers struggled to keep a pace with demand as the houses of the wealthy were being repainted. From the earliest days of August, gardens began to festoon many of the buildings, while at Baggett Street, one of the main thoroughfares into Dublin, a massive arch and gates were erected. These had been fashioned from iron on a gigantic scale. Measuring 127 feet wide and 92 feet high, they were emblazoned with the Irish words Caed Mila Falta, or 100,000 welcomes. The city was about to welcome Queen Victoria, who was due to arrive in Dublin on August 6th, and any signs of the famine was going to be kept from her eyes. Indeed, the visit had been under consideration since 1846, but the intensity of the famine had ensured it was postponed. However, the sharp contrast between the precarious existence of the likes of the Shea family and the splendour being shelled out on the arrival of Queen Victoria was obvious across Irish society at the time. Lord Fitzwilliam, the Irish landlord and Liberal Party MP for County Wicklow, warned that a visit from Victoria was not appropriate while Ireland still struggled under a crippling famine, which remained absolutely dire in the west of Ireland. His concerns were echoed by the former Chancellor of the Exchequer, the Limerick man, Thomas Spring Rice, better known as Lord Monteagle, who had been a staunch critic of some of the British government policies in the House of Lords. Neither Monteagle nor Fitzwilliam wanted anything to do with the visit, which would cost money in a country that was struggling to feed a starving population. With the more radical nationalist organ, The Nation, newspaper still banned since the 1848 Rising, it fell to the Freeman's Journal to give voice to the wider concerns about the Queen's visit. The Journal asked its readers, Are the proposed illuminations intended as the general wake of the victims of the hunger? The criticism of the visit also extended to the Lord Mayor of Dublin, who asked people living in streets where Victoria was due to pass to paint their homes. The Freeman's Journal labelled this as absurd. Many Dublin business owners saw the visit, though, in very different terms. They had little concern, ultimately, for the likes of the Shea family. Instead, they were thinking about money. As I've mentioned on numerous occasions, the economy had been utterly devastated by 1849. And following the lead of the Lord Lieutenant, the Earl of Clarendon, Dublin businessmen supported the visit. They made the dubious claim that a royal visit would help stimulate trade and trigger a recovery of the Irish economy. The Freeman's Journal was quick to point out, though, that even much of the material used to renovate Dublin Castle for the visit had been imported from England. The royal visit was certainly facing trouble, and to make matters worse, Victoria herself had a fraught relationship with Ireland. In terms of famine aid, contrary to popular opinion, she had launched two appeals for aid in 1847, one highly successful 
the other, through no fault of her own, it should be said, was disastrous. She had also given substantially more than the five pounds that's often attributed to her. Of her donations, two thousand pounds was the largest. That said, the monarch disliked Ireland and shared racist views of the Irish popular in England at the time. These had been shaped by some political and personal experiences. The early years of her reign had been dominated by Charterism, a radical movement in England of whom several leaders were Irish. This, along with the mass movement for the repeal of the Act of Union, led Victoria to view Ireland and the Irish as disloyal and rebellious, a view reinforced by the Young Ireland Rebellion of 1848. This was only reinforced by the fact a few months before she actually arrived in Ireland, an Irishman, William Hamilton, aimed a gun at her. This had little to do with Ireland, the gun wasn't even loaded and Hamilton suffered from mental illness, but it did reinforce opinions Victoria had about Ireland and its people. It has been suggested even that one of the reasons Queen Victoria was determined to come to Ireland in 1849 was to actually prove the point she was not afraid to. This was fueled by the fact that a previous visit in 1848 had been cancelled because of the rebellion that year. Nevertheless, problems and all, the visit did get underway in Cork on August 2nd. She stepped ashore in Cove, a town in Cork Harbour which was renamed Queenstown, mimicking a similar gesture afforded to her predecessor George IV who had landed in Dunleary, which was then named Kingstown in his honour. From there she made her way to Cork City and despite the fact the lyrics Arise ye dead of Skibbereen and come to Cork to see the Queen were heard in the streets, the opening leg of the visit was a success. From Cork, Victoria boarded the royal yacht and sailed around the coast, arriving at Dublin on Monday, August the 6th at the port of Kingstown, 12 miles to the south of the city. Although the visit was intentionally not a state visit to minimise costs, events in Dublin were surrounded by pomp and ceremony. From Dunleary, she boarded a train with a purpose-built carriage. Despite it being a lavish construction, this was only used to carry the Queen to the outskirts of Dublin, where she then disembarked at Sandymount. From there, she took another purpose-built carriage, this time drawn by horses, through the city in a long, circuitous route, stopping at numerous buildings and points of interest along the way. One of the most memorable stops was at the Iron Arch erected at Bagot Street, where the Queen formally entered the city of Dublin. Over the following four days, there were numerous events in the capital, including an excursion to Carton House, the residence of the Duke of Leinster. From Dublin, Victoria travelled north along the coast to Belfast, where she spent a few days before leaving Ireland for Scotland. There could be no question that this visit was a great success, from Victoria's point of view at least. She had come to what was unquestionably the most rebellious part of the United Kingdom, where the population had deep grievances, yet large crowds had turned out to greet her. Now, this was not mere propaganda by those seeking to create a positive image of the visit. John Mitchell, the Irish rebel, languishing in prison, awaiting transportation to Australia for his role in the 1848 rebellion, would describe the popular reaction to Victoria's visit as a disgraceful fact. The most concerted act of resistance had been a plot to kidnap Victoria, although it never came to anything. It involved very small numbers of people who could never have hoped to overpower the garrison of Dublin. However, while Victoria was well received, the visit had been heavily choreographed, with the route and choice of places she visited carefully chosen. 
By starting her visit in Cork and then travelling around the coast to Dublin and then on to Belfast again by sea, she was landing in the places that had recovered fastest and had been least affected. She did not visit the west of Ireland where, as we will see in the next episode, people were still dying and large-scale evictions running into the tens of thousands were taking place. Even in Dublin, her visit had been carefully planned. She didn't visit the parish of St. Mickens. Indeed, the impact or even awareness of her visit on people like the Shea family can only have been negligible. We have seen how their lives had deteriorated slowly over the four years of the famine since 1845, and while the worst had passed, the Shays were not out of danger yet. While the Queen was in Dublin, they had in fact entered the workhouse during a deadly cholera epidemic. Indeed, the closest the Queen came to the North Dublin workhouse was when she was approached by a member of the Board of Guardians of the Institute as she returned to the vice-regal lodge in the Phoenix Park where she was staying. However, his question was not even about the famine. Instead, he asked, Mighty monarch, pardon Smith O'Brien, a reference to William Smith O'Brien, the rebel leader in 1848 who was due to be transported to Australia. Arguably, the only impact the royal visit had on those being directly affected by the famine in Dublin was that on August 7, 1849, the inhabitants of the North Dublin workhouse received a meat dinner in honour of her visit. Much has been made over the lack of protest to Queen Victoria's visit to Ireland. And while it was stage-managed and she avoided the worst parts of the island, I'm not so sure she would have faced riots or protests anywhere in 1849. She had avoided the island in 1848 and indeed 1846 when the situation was very different. By 1849 the moment for insurrection had long passed in Ireland. Lord John Russell, the Prime Minister, had described the mood in the country in the following terms. Agitation is extinct, repeal is forgotten, the seditious associations are closed, the priests are frightened and the people are tranquil. Indeed, Russell believed the famine could be used almost like a PR exercise for Victoria. She could come to Ireland and face little or no opposition, but present herself as a saviour. Russell had said, The general distress of all classes has its advantages, for it will enable the Queen to do what is kind and considerate to those who are suffering. Those who were directly suffering from the famine were clearly in no position to rebel or protest against Victoria. Overall, the focus on Queen Victoria's visit has provided something of a historical distraction from the later stages of the famine and the really important events that shaped the final phase of the Great Hunger. The monarchy in England by the mid-19th century had very limited power. Queen Victoria ultimately had little or no role in formulating government policy. The focus should remain on the Liberal government of Lord John Russell because they had taken some very serious decisions that would influence life in Ireland in 1849, 1850 and 1851. Over the rest of this podcast, we will close the story of the Great Hunger in Dublin and then in the following show, we will look at some of those decisions that ultimately prolonged the Great Hunger, particularly in the west of Ireland. It was the second last day of Queen Victoria's visit to Dublin that George and Bridget Shea had finally returned to the workhouse for what was now the eighth time since the Great Famine had begun. There they encountered stories of so many people who had little time to think about Queen Victoria or her visit. A particularly sad story was that of three children, Peter, Elizabeth and Matthew Connell, aged between 5 and 13 from Virginia in County Cavan, who had taken to the road earlier in the summer in search of a father who had deserted them. 
Their mother was presumably dead as the children were listed as orphans. In Dublin, they were stranded with nowhere to turn. There was no sign of their father. They entered the workhouse and wouldn't leave for three years. The cholera epidemic was also creating havoc for others. James and Margaret Levins, a brother and sister from Cabra just outside of Dublin, had been orphaned when their parents had died from the disease. Their stories, in many ways, puts the Queen's visit in perspective. Having endured over three years of hardship, these people were now far more concerned with survival than her presence. Cholera was a far more pressing and immediate concern. The disease had broken out in Belfast in December 1848 and was thriving in the filthy conditions of putrid water and malnourished population of Dublin in the summer of 1849. Hospitals which effectively allowed the sick to be quarantined from the wider workhouse population had been set up in the former sheriff's prison on Green Street and the disused linen hall. And while this minimised contagion, it did not totally eradicate risk. And while the workhouse was probably no greater risk than the filth of St. Mickens in which they lived, George and Bridget Shea could not look after their son in the workhouse. He was sent to a separate part of the building where children stayed. This cholera epidemic was proving to be a vicious thing in the tale of the Great Famine. It was claiming all too many lives. The final tally was somewhere in the region of 20,000 people who had managed to endure the trials of the Great Hunger but then perished from cholera. However, in spite of the threat posed, the Shea family, well acquainted with workhouses by this stage, could undoubtedly have seen the marked improvement in the general famine situation. There was no question that the workhouse was just not as overcrowded as it had been in Black 47. In that year, while soup kitchens across Ireland were feeding 3 million people, there had still been 2,500 people in the North Dublin workhouse as well. In 1848, when the soup kitchens had been closed down, the numbers in the workhouse had increased significantly. There had been over 5,000 people in the workhouse or receiving famine aid from the workhouse authorities in the late summer of 1848. However, by the late summer of 1849, the situation was clearly different. The total numbers dependent on aid from the institution had fallen to 2,500 people and it more or less remained at that level through the rest of the year. On August the 21st, 1849, George Shea, his wife Bridget, and their last surviving child, John, left the workhouse. While probably not aware of it yet themselves, they had survived the great hunger. They would not re-enter the workhouse until 1855, well after it had ended. In the coming weeks, Dublin received more good news as the cholera epidemic began to subside. In July, the number of deaths in the workhouse, most of which could be attributed to cholera, had been around 40 per week. By September, however, that weekly death rate in the workhouse had fallen to around 6. By mid-September, pronouncements were made in the press that the epidemic was finally subsiding. However, the famine could not be said to have ended anywhere until some level of normality returned to the potato crop, which provided food for so many people across Ireland. But even that in the late summer and autumn of 1849 showed signs of hope. As the Shea family emerged from the workhouse, word from the Dublin potato market was good. In late August, this essential foodstuff, the potato, was in large supply, a sign of the optimism about the upcoming harvest that could be found right across Ireland. This optimism was bolstered by the fact that the weather was good, something that would prevent a return of blight. 
Ultimately, in the coming weeks, the harvest proved to be by and large positive. Blight only returned in isolated parts of the island and the harvest was generally pretty good, certainly the best since 1844. While this led to a substantial improvement in the general situation, the overall event that was the Great Hunger was not over. As we have seen in the series to date, the Great Famine, certainly after 1847 anyway, was not caused by a lack of food, but rather an inability to buy the food that was available. And in the coming months and indeed years, many in the impoverished west of Ireland who did not have land to grow their own crops would struggle to earn enough to buy food. They were left dependent on workhouses. In the next episode, we will be heading out west to look at the final stage of the Great Hunger. Finally, we cannot finish the show without a few words about George and Bridget Shea. In her book, The Great Hunger, Cecil Wilhelm Smith remarked, The famine was never over in the sense of an epidemic occurs and it is over. The poverty of the Irish people continued. This was certainly the case for George and Bridget. The famine, it could be argued, and this is something I will be discussing in future episodes, never really ended for them. The Shays, for example, could never escape from the shadow of the workhouse and in the mid-1850s and then over the following years, they returned intermittently. George was in the workhouse in 1855, while he and Bridget returned together in 1856. The couple were approaching their 50s by this point, but because of their experiences and social class, they were nearing what many would have considered old age. In 1860, George Shea returned to the workhouse. He was described as a labourer, but given he was around the right age and living on Church Street, this seems to be our George. If the records are to be trusted, Bridget had died by this point. George was described as a widower. He stayed in the workhouse for over a month, where he died on May 17th, 1860. This left me wondering if we could ever say the famine truly ended for this couple. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you want to support my work and receive lots of bonus features, check out patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. That's patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. Finally, don't forget those live shows coming up in Dublin on June the 22nd and Waterford on July the 13th. Until next time, Sloan. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.